Psalm 3, verse 1. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. You may be seated. I think this morning you have already heard an introduction to the message two times. First of all, in the devotions before Sunday school, and then in the topic that Ivan shared about pain. You don't need to keep your eyes open very long until you realize that we live in an imperfect world, a world that is filled with pain, with turmoil, and with suffering and death. And if you follow the news at all, you're bombarded with details of these events. You hear of some deranged student going into his school and opening fire, killing 17 students. Or a tsunami hitting a coast, wiping out entire villages. And more than 2,000 people lost their lives. Or you hear about a wildfire that burns uncontrolled, destroying 150,000 acres, 18,000 buildings, and 86 lives. Or a hurricane that recently hit our coast, killing more than 50 people and causing billions of dollars worth of damage. Or a volcano erupting, destroying the countryside, and again taking hundreds of lives. Or a war and suffering that drags on for year after year, with reportedly 8 million people living in one country who do not know where their next meal is coming from because of the conditions in which they are living. Or persecution raging on where Christians are routinely tortured and imprisoned and killed. Or refugees arriving to camps by the boatload only to live in conditions that leave them wondering if there really is anything left to live for. These events that I just described are all events that have taken place in the last year or are still taking place today. And these are major issues. In some cases, entire families are lost. In other cases, portions of families lose their lives. Parents may be lost, leaving children with no one to care for them, no one to look after them, no one to meet our needs. Sometimes family members are separated, husbands and wives, parents and children, with no idea if the other is dead or alive, or if they are alive, where they are. Or maybe a family has lost everything they have. They survived, but without anything. 
Now these are terrible events. But the truth is, the reality of these events don't really penetrate our minds. We hear about them and we say, how sad or how terrible. And we go on with our lives. You see, things that happen in North Carolina or Florida or California or Indonesia or Guatemala or Yemen or North Korea or Greece don't really affect us all that much. But they are real. And for some people, they are very real. And many people are asking, where is God? Or is there a God? If there is a God, does he care? Why does he allow such suffering? Why doesn't he do something? Why should I have any interest in a God that allows such evil and turmoil and suffering? These are questions that people are asking. But you do not need to experience a school shooting or a hurricane or war to ask those questions because there are events that happen right here in our group that leave us asking the same questions. We've already been reminded that today is the four-year anniversary since Ben Glick passed away. And there are others here who have lost a spouse or a parent and continue to struggle with that reality. Many of us, or I should say all of us, know someone who is struggling with cancer. It may be a close friend. It may be a spouse or a parent. Or it may be your own diagnosis. For some, life is drastically changed when someone in your family has a stroke and life will never be the same again. Or maybe a family member chooses to reject God, go his own way. Maybe someone in your family, someone that you know has recently filed for divorce or an acquaintance has committed suicide or died a tragic death. Or your newborn baby needs to be admitted to Hershey Medical Center because of complications. Every one of these events that I just mentioned are events that have touched lives here within our circle in the past year. And sometimes we find ourselves asking. I know that there are the same questions within this group. Where is God when it hurts? Does he care? Why doesn't he do something? And why should I have any interest in a God that allows such evil and turmoil and suffering in our lives? The title of the message this morning is, Where is God when it hurts? I'd like to look at the example of a man who struggled with that question. David. David asked some very pointed questions. <laughs> questions like, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why hidest thou thy face from me? Why hast thou forgotten me? Psalm 3 is the testimony of David when he was facing a crisis in his life. 
in the beginning of the psalm, you may have in your Bible before verse 1 that says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And that account is found in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, I'll just give a little bit of a summary. Absalom and David, their relationship had been strained for several years. Absalom had left home, left the hometown, and then he returned, and he had an agenda. And he started building the loyalty of the people toward himself and away from his father, David. He started with a few people, and that number steadily grew and grew. He had hundreds of people. It says the people increased continually with Absalom. And Absalom eventually moved in and began to take over. And the message came to David that the hearts of the men of Israel are turned away from you. They're to turn towards Absalom, ape from Absalom. So David led with a flu, a few men with him. We find him running for his life. This was not a new experience for David. It's not the first time he had been running for his life, nor the second. Seems to have been a theme through his life. In this case, he left Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, it's desert. It's wilderness. Barren country. It's hot. It's dry. And I can picture as David and his few men that were with him were leaving. They were exhausted, worn out, hot, tired, thirsty, covered with dust, and probably continually looking over their shoulders, wondering how far behind them this band of men were. One of David's chief advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, had deserted David. And he had turned, he himself turned over to Absalom. And he told Absalom, let's band, let's find a, a band of men, get, a, get our group together. Let's go after David right away. If we do, we can get him and everything will be yours. David knew Ahithophel very well. In fact, he prayed that God would turn his counsel to foolishness. So they were looking over their shoulders. And night came, and they set up camp, wondering what the morrow would bring. Would they survive the night? Would they survive the next day? Well, morning comes, and this spanned of stragglers, stirs to life, pack up the few things they have, get ready to run again. Tensions are high. And in this hustle and bustle, someone asks, where's David? He's not here among us. Did he disappear? Was he captured? And as they look, pretty soon they find him off to the side of their campsite. And I can picture him there sitting next to a rock, and of all things, he is writing in his journal. Who would take time to write in their journal when they're running for their life? David did, and I'm glad he did, because that's what we see in Psalm 3. This is his journal as he was running for his life. And this is David's response to the question, where is God when it hurts? 
Where is God when it hurts? This psalm, Psalm 3, we'd like to look at that psalm in response to that question. And the psalm divides itself nicely into four points with two verses for each point. The first point in verses 1 and 2, we see David's problem. We all have problems. And I mentioned a few problems or a few issues or a few pains, a few difficulties that some of us have experienced in the past year. There are more problems. They're big. They're small. What is our response? Well, what was David's response? Well, he describes his problem, a description of his problem. He says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. You see, earlier in his life, it was David, or excuse me, it was Saul that was pursuing him. Now it was his son Absalom, and not only his son, but basically the whole country was turning against him in this instance. He says, many are they that rise up against me. That was a description of his problem. But beyond that, what was the scope of his problem? How serious was this problem? In verse 2, he says, many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. People are saying, David, not even God can help you out of this one. This time you're in over your head. Yes, you may have escaped a lion. You may have escaped a bear. You may have escaped Goliath. You may have escaped Saul. But you've never faced anything like you're facing now. And this time, you may as well hang it up. Because not even God can help you. Where is God when it hurts? His own family is against him. The whole nation is against him. That's what people were saying. That was the scope of the problem that David was facing. And three times in this passage, we see a little word. We see it right after verse 2, the word Selah. And people discuss what this word means. Perhaps a musical term. In, in one sense, it can represent a crescendo, like a climax. You know, building up to this problem, to the climax, there is not even any hope for you and God. Not even God can help you. But I think this word also indicates a, a pause, a stop. Just to let that sink in. Not even God can help you. Just think about that for a bit. Just small over that. Stop and think about that. That was the scope of David's problem. Now, how do we respond when we have such a problem? When we get to the point where we say, where is God? God, don't you care? Why aren't you doing anything? Why should I trust God? There's one response that some people have turned to throughout history, over the years. And that is suicide. Now, suicide is a rather morbid subject. It's not a pleasant subject to talk about. Several months ago, there was someone in the Amish community here who committed suicide. Shortly after that, one of the brothers in the congregation was talking to me and said, how do we deal with suicide? He said, I'd like to hear something about that sometime. And he kind of challenged me to address the subject. Like I say, not a pleasant subject. But I'd like to make a few comments on it as we consider our response to problems. That would be one response, suicide. And I'd like to make a several comments. One of them is 
Suicide is never the response of a person who is led by God. On the contrary, it's a response of a person who does not have God in his life. We have several examples of suicides in the Bible, and I find it very interesting that in these cases where suicide is mentioned in the Bible, it is often specifically mentioned that the Spirit of God had left that person or Satan had entered into that person. And that is a very uh, telling commentary on this issue of suicide. It is never the response of a person who is led by God. One example is Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. I'll read several verses. 1 Samuel 16, 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And then several chapters later, a number of chapters later, Saul went to this, to this medium, to this witch, whatever you want to call her, someone, to ask for some questions. And he made the comment, he said, I am sore distressed, for God is departed from me. God is not in my life anymore. And he was given the message that in a very short time, he was going to be dead. And it may have been the next day after he made the statement that I'm sore distressed. At any rate, it was a very short time afterwards that Saul committed suicide. And I think that was a reflection of the fact that God's spirit was not within him. Another example, Judas in the New Testament. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. And again, it may have been the very next day that Judas committed suicide. I think it was a reflection of the fact that Satan, he allowed Satan to control his life. Another example, Ahithophel uh, was the counselor that I just referred to. Here during Absalom's revolt. He had been David's counselor. And he defected from David and turned over to Absalom. And when he saw that things were not turning out the way he anticipated. It says he got him to his house. Put his household in order. And hanged himself and died. And I think the fact of him turning away from David. Turning over to the rebel is symbolic of him turning away. From God. And we see the result. Samson. Another man. The scripture very specifically says. He wist not. That the Lord was departed from him. The spirit of God. Had been upon him. The spirit of God left. Samson was not aware of it immediately. But he soon became very very. Aware of it. And later on he prayed for strength. And God answered his prayer and allowed him to do what he had set out to do. But there is no record of God's spirit returning upon him. And Samson's death was a direct result of the fact that God's spirit had departed from him. So I repeat that suicide is never the response of a person who is led by God. Furthermore, suicide is never an escape. It is not a way out. It is going from the difficult to the impossible. It is jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Probably more literally than we care to think about. You see, as long as there's life, there is hope. God can still perform 
a redeeming work in the life of any living person. But when a person dies, his fate is sealed. It's not hard at all to find people who will tell you that a person who commits suicide may go to heaven. In fact, that teaching is pretty prevalent. I just did a little bit of research and I found that very prevalent. Some will even indicate that a person, that you can pray a person out of damnation after he dies. And I believe these people are simply not willing to face the facts of life and the reality of the scripture. Furthermore, suicide is an act of rebellion against God for a number of reasons. It ignores the sanctity of life. God created life. And if I destroy something which God created, whether it is someone else's life or my own life, I am rebelling against God. It's ignoring the sanctity of life, rebelling against God. Not only does it ignore the sanctity of life, it ignores God's plan and purpose for your life. God does have a plan. He does have a purpose. Saul, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians, presented a dilemma that he was feeling. And he got to the point in his life where he said, I just desire to go and be with my Lord. He says, I, I desire to depart out of this life. He said, nevertheless, I realize that for me to abide is more needful for you. He said, I realize, I recognize that God has a plan for me. And that plan does not call for my departure yet at this point. He was submitting to God's plan and purpose for his life. Now imagine if, if Paul would not have lived as long as he had. The history of the world could be different. The evangelism into Europe. Think about how much of the New Testament we would, that would be missing. So it ignores God's plan and purpose for our life. It also ignores God's timing. Looks like I missed that point on the outline. It ignores God's timing. Um, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 says the time of my departure is at hand. This was later in his life. He knew he was nearing the end and he knew that at this point God's plan was for him to depart soon. It was his timing. And furthermore, suicide rejects God's reward. In 2 Timothy, Paul put a direct connection between two things. He said, I have finished my faith, my, my course. I've kept the faith Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He put a connection between those two that because I have completed my course, I have fulfilled my purpose that God designed for me, there is a reward awaiting for me. I cannot offer the hope of eternal reward to those who would so blandly and deliberately reject God's design through suicide. Now, like I said, this is somewhat of a morbid subject. And maybe you're thinking, well, you're not doing very much to ease my pain. What hope do you have to offer? What encouragement can you give me? My encouragement is to focus on what lies ahead and not on what is behind. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, after David sinned with Bathsheba, he had a son that was born, and Nathan told him that that son was going to die. That son became very sick. 
David went into a state of mourning. He would not eat. He would not be comforted. He would not allow anyone to really communicate with him. And the day came when that son died and David's servants were discussing among themselves, how is David going to handle this? He said, he wouldn't even respond to us when his son was sick. What in the world is he going to do when he finds out that his son died? And David saw his servants talking and he perceived what happened. And he said, did my son die? They said, yes, he died. David got up, washed himself. He started eating. Not only that, he went to the temple and worshiped. His servants were confused. He said, well, what's going on here? David's response, when the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, there's nothing I can do about someone who is gone. He says, I shall go to him. The day will come when I will die, but he shall not return to me. And then what did David do? He went to the temple and worshipped. Ivan made the comment that our pain needs to draw us to God. And that is the emphasis of my sermon, my message here this morning. May our pain draw us to God. May it take us into his presence to worship him. And our focus needs to be on those of us who are alive. Our focus needs to be on ourselves, our own relationship with God, and then on the needs of others around us. And when people respond with a comment, when I see so much evil, I do not believe there is a God. I find that comment to be absolutely absurd. And I'll tell you why. Have you ever been out in the wintertime in the cold maybe in some outdoor activity, and you nearly froze your fingers or your toes, and you were just miserable with cold. At that moment, did you say, you know, I don't believe there is anything like heat. You know, I'm feeling so much cold around me that I don't think there is any heat. I don't think heat exists. I think there is nothing but cold. This is just the new normal. No, cold drives you towards the heat. The colder you feel, the more you long for the heat. The same is true in many other instances. If you're lost in darkness, you long for the light. If you are suffering from thirst, if you're nearly dying of thirst, can you imagine someone who is dying of thirst saying, I don't believe in water. I don't believe there is water. I don't believe water exists. This is just the way things are. Everyone is always thirsty. No, when you are thirsty, you are driven to the water. You feel your need for the water. You cannot think of anything but water. When we are facing evil, when we are facing pain, how can we think of anything except God? It should drive us toward God. And if in that circumstance we say that there is no God, I think it's just simply an excuse to succumb to evil and declaring that evil is the norm. What was David's response? Let's go back to his response in Psalm 3. 
Many there be that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Did David accept that way of thinking? Let's move on to verses 3 and 4, which I describe as David's protector. David is describing his protector. Verse 3 starts out with the word, but. Verse 2, many people say there is no help for him in God. Selah. Stop and think about that for a while. And he says, but. But. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Thou, O Lord. You see, in verse 2, people were referring to God in a general way. There's no help for him in God. But David does not refer to God in a general way. God addresses or David addresses God in a personal way as his Lord. You, O Lord. This is a personal situation. What they don't realize, what these people don't realize is that you are my Lord. I am yours and you are mine. I belong to you. And there is no way you are going to forget about me. There is no way you are going to overlook my problems. I ask you the question, is God your Lord? And if your problems are overwhelming you, come into God's presence like David did. Seek him. You are my Lord. You are my shield, he says, as well. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You are my Lord. You are my shield. A shield is a source of protection. And David is saying... God, I know the armies are pursuing me. I know the nation is turned against me. But I know that you stand between me and them because you're my shield. They cannot get to me without passing you first. You stand between me and the world. And not only that, but a shield is not only a source of protection. A shield is also a source of identity. Many times, in old times, a shield had the emblem of the king on the shield. And even today, businesses often have a logo, sometimes in the shape of a seal that they, uh, that they use to identify themselves. And David, in saying to God, you are my shield, he was saying, not only you are my protection, but you are my identity. He said, it doesn't matter what other people say. I don't care if people say that you can't help me. Because I don't find my identity in what other people say. You are my identity. My identity isn't based on what I hear. It's based on you. My protection, my identity. Furthermore, he says, you are my glory. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me and my glory. David was a king. Where do kings find their glory? They find their glory in their riches and in their splendor. In their nation and their people and in their armies. David had lost every one of these. The nation had turned against him. He fled from his riches. Absalom was living in the palace. Absalom had taken possession of all the riches and splendor. David didn't even have the armies. He had lost all of this. He had lost his glory, you would think, but no. David says, God, you 
are my glory. Where do you find your glory? Do you find your glory in your good health? As long as I'm healthy, I can handle pretty much anything. Do you find your glory in your possessions? Or maybe your relationships, your family? As long as I have my husband, as long as I have my spouse, as long as I have my parents, I can handle it. What happens if you lose your glory? What happens if you lose these things? David did not lose his glory. He said, I may have lost all these things, but you, Lord, are my glory, and I will always have you. And he goes on to say, you lift up my head. You are the lifter up of mine head. I'd like you to picture a little child. Maybe this child goes out to his playmates, and maybe they're busy playing. Let's suppose his children or his friends are making mud pies and this child runs up to them and wants to play with them and for some reason the other children will not allow him to play with them. They reject him and say, no, we don't want you with us, you go home. So this little child goes running home to mama and says, they won't let me play with them. He's all distraught. Mama reaches down, puts her hand under his chin, lifts up his chin and says, why don't you just come with me? Let's go in the house. We won't make mud pies. We'll make real cookies. We have something better than mud pies. And suddenly that child's perspective changes. Everything's okay. His mother lifted up his head. That's what God wants to do for you this morning if you are experiencing pain. He wants to reach down, put his fingers under your chin, and lift up your head. And he says, son, daughter, I have something a lot better than mud pies. Come with me. Let's make the real cookies. Don't worry about what people say. Don't worry about your squashed plans. My plans are much better. David says, I cried unto the Lord. And he heard me. He heard me out of his holy hill. Now remember what the other people said? Not even God can help him. David says, but I cried unto God and he heard me. And then we see that word again, Selah. Stop and think about that for a while. I cried unto the God of the universe and he heard me. The God who controls the affairs of the world listens to me. He says, now that is something to stop and think about. So what happens when an overwhelming problem meets up with an almighty protector? An overwhelming problem meets up with an almighty protector. What happens? Well, when the protector takes care of the problem... You have peace. Verses 5 and 6. This problem that not even God was supposed to be able to deliver him from. This problem that was supposed to be giving him stomach ulcers and gray hair. No. David experienced peace. We don't find him pacing around the campfire all night long. 
For one thing, they probably didn't even have a campfire out there in the wilderness. There's probably nothing to burn. They probably wouldn't have wanted the enemy to see where their fire was. What did he do? I laid down and slept. I might ask, what was this? Denial? Was David out of touch with reality? Didn't he realize the seriousness of the situation? No, I would say this was the peace that passeth understanding that allowed him to lay down and sleep. The peace that only God can provide. I laid me down and slept. Now, I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture. There are times when we lie awake at night, troubled by life's pressures. It happened to David. David spent sleepless nights where he wet his pillow with his tears. And it may happen to you. It happens to me. There are times that I lie awake, just troubled by the pressures of life. But usually I find in those situations that I'm focusing more on the problem and less on my protector. And when I focus on the protector, he can provide the peace. David says, I laid me down and slept. And he says, and I awoke. I can just imagine in his journal that he was writing, he, he just couldn't help but to stick those little words in there. I awoke. Because there were people saying, David, if you lay down to sleep, you're never going to get awake again. If you give up vigilance, that's going to be the end. They're going to come up in you at night. They're going to kill you. And that's going to be the end. He says, I laid me down and slept. And guess what? I woke up. Morning came. I'm raring to go. For the Lord sustained me. I laid me down and slept. I waked. For the Lord sustained me. You see, at this point, Absalom had the people. But David had the Lord. Absalom had the palace. David had the Lord. Absalom, Absalom had the counsel of Ahithophel. But David had the Lord. And David was probably looking back on earlier instances in his life. The lion had the teeth. And the bear had the claws. And Goliath had the sword and the spear and the size. But David had the Lord. The Lord sustained me. He recognized that it was the Lord who sustained him. Now David could have chosen to end the psalm at this point. He had a problem, he had a protector, and he had peace. And we could say the picture was complete. But he did not end there. He went on. So if you have a problem... You recognize your protector. You come to God. He brings you peace. Is there anything more? Let's look at the last two verses. Sorry, I wasn't keeping up there with those. I lay me down and slept. I woke. I've been sustained. I will not be afraid. The last two verses, we find David's prayer. And this is a prayer of committal. It's not just simply acknowledging that, okay, God, you took care of the problems, I have peace. But David was committing himself. It was, it was a recognition of God, but it was also a committal. He says, arise, O Lord, save me. This was an expression of David's trust in God. He knew the power was not in himself. And I find the next phrase very encouraging. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies. 
Now, does that sound logical? Absalom was very much alive. The armies of Israel were very much alive back there in the palace. David was still on the run, but he says, God, you have smitten my enemies. He talks as if the battle is over. And in faith, he knew that the victory was as good as won because his protector was capable. This was an expression of David's faith. You see, the encounter with Absalom, the face-off, was yet to come. But David wrote as if it was already over. And for us, you know, our battles may lie ahead of us. The pain may lie ahead of us. The pain we are experiencing has not ended. It is not over. And who knows, it may increase as the future comes. But regardless of that, the battle has been won. 2,000 years ago, Jesus cried, it is finished. He met the forces of evil. He met the enemy head on and he stood up in victory. If you feel discouraged and if you feel like Satan is trying to tell you that the battle is not over and that you are losing the battle, read the book of Revelation because that describes the end. And the next time Satan comes to dis discourage you, you tell him, Satan, guess what? I looked ahead. I peeked at the end of the book. And I saw what the outcome is going to be. And you lose. The battle has been won. You don't stand a chance. Jesus is victor. And I am on his side. We need to align ourselves with the winning side. Verse 8 says, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Again, an expression of David's helplessness. No, I can't win the battle. I know that. It's not in me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not in crying and tears. It's not in good works. It's not in going to church. It's not being baptized. Salvation is in God alone. Thy blessing is upon thy people. And I think this is an expression of David's surrender. He says... Yeah, I want your blessing, but I recognize that your blessing is upon your people. And if I want your blessing, I need to commit myself to you. I need to surrender to you. I need to become yours. Are you at that point this morning where you are just willing to say, God, here I am. I give up. I can't handle this pain. I know I can't. But God, I'm yours. I place myself in your hands. I give myself to you. Ken read that account earlier this morning from God calling Moses. Moses said, God, what can I say? What, what can I tell the people? You know, these may also have been people that said there's no help for God. Who should I, what should I tell them? Who should I tell them you are? God said, tell them that I am. And I read a little commentary, I guess you could say, on that verse or somebody's imagination. This little reading says, I listened as God was speaking. 
My name is I am, he said. He paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its failures and pain, life is difficult. I am not there. My name is not I was. When you live in the future with its fears and worries, it is hard because I'm not there. My name is not I will be. But when you walk with me today, I will be with you. My name is I am. David did not recognize, or David did not deny that he had a problem. He did not ignore the problem. He acknowledged his problem. But he did not get stuck in it. He moved his focus from his pain, from his problem, to the Lord, his protector. And when your pain feels overwhelming, remember God is the source of his of your salvation. Is God your God? If not, allow him to be your God today. Let's pray. Let's kneel for prayer. Father, we acknowledge this morning that sometimes our lives are filled with pain that feels overwhelming. Sometimes we ask questions and we may ask, where are you? Why don't you care? Why should I care about you? But Lord, I pray that our pain this morning could just drive us to you or drive us into your presence so that we can experience your peace. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not surrendered themselves to you, who has not given themselves into your care, who have not given up trying on their own, I pray that your spirit would minister to them, that they could come to that spirit of willingness. Lord, bring us all to that spirit, to that place of willingness and surrendering to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.